0: Well, I'll take a moment to greet you as well. My name is Drew Thorwall. It is great to be back with you today. How cool to be able to worship together and to realize that Jesus paid it all on the old rugged cross. Don't you love that? I love that. I hope that sets a tone for what we're going to study this morning. You know, Jesus probably more than anybody in history was willing to man up, right? Are you ready to man up? Come on. Come on. Are you ready to man up? I know. You want to know what that means before we do it, right? You know, it reminds me when I was in junior high and high school and playing basketball. And I love to play basketball. And everywhere I go, I try to find somewhere that I can be playing basketball. But that's because I love the game, not necessarily because I'm that good at the game. And so when I was in high school, you know, you'd hear the, the eye of the tiger playing and everybody's getting pumped up. We'd all run out and we'd do our warm-ups and then I'd jog over to the end of the bench and kind of wait till the end of the game. <laughs> if we were up by 30... Or down by 30, I'd get about 30 seconds, somewhere at the end there. All right, but I loved the game, and so I decided since I didn't have the skill, I was going to make up for it with effort. And so this is what my coach would always say to us. So I'd be in practice, and I would just be running my butt off, because even though I'm not going to make every shot, I can try hard in practice. I can make sure coach knows that I'm giving it my all. I can play good defense against the starters to help them get ready for the game. And, and so we're running, and we're running, and we're running. And the whole time, coach is over here on the sideline sitting down, I might add, yelling, man up! If he sees you slow down at all, or he sees you do one of these, like coach, I'm trying, man Man up! Man up now! Come on, man up! Now, basically what he meant was just try harder, right? But as we're looking at what it means for leaders to man up, we really want to have a, a little bit broader of a definition than Coach Cruz did. Because a lot of us have spent a lot of our lives just just kind of blindly trying harder, but we need a little bit more encouragement than that, a little bit more direction. And so as we've been going through the book of 1 Kings and pulling out the leadership lessons that are in there, we've seen that when a leader won't man up, a nation spirals down. And so we've been using this definition of what it looks like to man up. It means that we reject passivity, that we accept responsibility, that we lead courageously, And that we expect the greater reward. And so we've seen already how in the life of King David, because he didn't man up, he didn't have a clear succession plan in place, that what ends up happening is that there's confusion. And the confusion causes there to be battles for control. And those battles can lead to catastrophe. But now today we come to 1 Kings chapter 3. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon is now the king. Solomon's experienced some of that confusion. He's experienced those battles for control. He's had a rough time in the last couple of chapters leading to this point. And so now that he's king, he's kind of looking at the situation and he's saying, how do we avoid those things? Right now that I'm king, what does it look like to have a happier, a healthier, a more blessed kingdom? And so we'll see right in the first few verses that he's really trying to seek peace and seek God and you can see what it says there first Kings chapter three starting with verse one. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile the people sacrificed at the high places, because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. There's a couple things that we need to notice here because they're really foreshadowing for the end of Solomon's kingship. Because Solomon, when he decided he wanted peace in his country, he went with the oldest political trick in the book. You look around at your neighboring countries and you say, how do I make friends with these guys real quick? You see which ones have daughters and you marry them. Then they have to treat you like family from now on. So he goes out and he mar- marries Pharaoh's daughter to make a treaty with Egypt. All right, so this is one of the things that's foreshadowing, because as Solomon's career goes on, this becomes a pattern for him. The other thing is that it says the people worshipped at high places. It says that Solomon loved the Lord, except that he also sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now for an Israelite who's reading this, for, for the, the audience that 1 Kings was written to, high place is like a buzzword for idolatry. These are the places that foreign nations would worship false gods. And so this is meant to be kind of a a warning signal. And by the end of Solomon's life, the women and the high places, which usually went hand in hand because they were coming from other nations with their false gods, became things that would trip him up. So there's a bit of foreshadowing here, but I do want you to notice that in verse 3 it says that Solomon loved the Lord. Alright, Solomon had a heart that was sincerely seeking after God. It says he was walking in the statutes of his father David, All right, a man who was called a man after God's own heart. And so even for David's failings, there's a recognition here for him and for Solomon that they are earnestly seeking God. But these potential pitfalls make a little more sense of verse 4 then when it says that now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. You can see a picture of Gibeon there, and, and you've got to know the history of Gibeon. All right, in Deuteronomy 12, it says that when God's people came into a new territory, they were supposed to destroy all the high places. Well, the Gibeonites got wind of this. In Joshua chapter 9, I'll, I'll let you read that story for yourself, but basically the Gibeonites see the Israelites coming See that the Israelites have been destroying things along the way, and so the Gibeonites say, this, this is bad for business. So they make a plan, and basically they trick the Israelites into making a treaty with them. And one of the interesting things it says in that passage is that the men of Israel did not seek God's counsel in this. So Gibeon tricked them. They made a treaty without seeking God. And so that's the reason that this place had not been destroyed because of the treaty they had made. Now, going on from there, it it gets worse because then not only did they not destroy it, but then they put the tabernacle up there. But we'll see later in this very passage that the Ark of the Covenant, which should be in the tabernacle, which represents the presence of God with his people, was not there, but in Jerusalem. Without the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle is basically just a big tent. And so this is the place that Solomon comes to make these offerings, is the, the great high place with a tent that is a shell of its former self. But, you know, part of the reason I I make a note of that to you is because I think sometimes that that God gives us grace, even in these things. He saw the sincerity in Solomon's heart, even though Solomon was misguided. And and essentially, God meets Solomon at the wrong place, but at the right time. And in verse 5, this is what it says. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon... In a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? Now look at that question. He appeared to Solomon in a dream and says, what shall I give you? And notice that, that there are no caveats on this. All right? This isn't like the genie that says, no wishing for more wishes. All right, God says anything. Ask, what shall I give you? Now think about the, the things that you dream about. Right, The things that you long for, if you could ask for anything. And notice also that, that something unique is really happening here because God speaks to people frequently in dreams in the Bible. right? But a lot of times these dreams come with, with symbolism. You know, There are things that as soon as the person dreaming wakes up, they say, what in the world was that about? And somebody has to interpret it for them. Or there are other examples like Mary in the New Testament. God comes to Mary and there's no symbols at all. He says, you are going to have a baby he's going to be the messiah you're going to call him emmanuel so it's either like mystery or or a pretty clear mission directive but when he comes here to solomon it's a question he says to solomon what shall i give you you know when i think about when you first hear a question like that you know where does where does your mind jump to you know is it is it well well health you know, for me and my family, or or long life, or or financial well-being, or at least financial security, if not winning the lottery, you know, but some of these good things that'll make life easier, right? You know, we see what what Solomon is trying to do in verses 1 through 3, in in seeking peace and seeking God. So maybe he says, well, destroy my enemies, you know, remove those things. You know, he's right at the beginning of really a massive opportunity in his life. You know, and, and maybe for you, that's, that's, marriage right looking forward and saying god i'm at the beginning of of really something huge in my life and i want to see you bless this or maybe it's the the second half of marriage you know how to really continue to to honor god with that relationship and for some of us we're right at the beginning of something big like a new business or a new project with our business or or a new career you know others of us maybe we're in a similar position as solomon He already had the financial well-being. He already had a lot of influence and power. I mean, he's king over Israel, and David had built up a pretty big nation. But maybe some of us, what we need is we need wisdom for the second half. and We need wisdom on how to retire, how to finish well. Or maybe we just need wisdom if you've got kids like me. You just need wisdom from the day to day on how to balance grace and truth in the lives of your family. Well, Solomon has a moment here where he could ask for anything he wants. And in that moment, Solomon discovers a truth that I think really can can shift all of our perspectives. And that is that leadership is stewardship. As he moves into his position as king, he realizes that leadership is stewardship. And he kind of figures this out in 1 Kings 3 through three steps by recognizing the challenge by seeking the godly solution, and by responding. And so this is going to be the path that he follows. And I don't have verse 6 on the screen for you there, but now that God has asked him this question, he begins to speak. And this is what Solomon says. You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him. And you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So already he's, he's giving God glory for the work that he has done in the nation, for the work that he did in David's life. He's also manning up. He's recognizing the responsibility that he has, the charge that David gave him in chapter 2. And then in verse 7 he says this, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. I love the two things that he puts together here. He says, God, you have made me king. All right, king is like the top of the ladder. It doesn't get any higher than king. And yet the very next line he says, but I am a little child. All right, so even as he looks at his high position, he's looking at his low position. He says, I'm a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Do you realize how little a child has to be to not know how to go out or come in? I've got four kids, one is four, I've got uh, twin boys that are two, and then we've got a ten-month-old. And I can tell you, our, our two-year-old twins do not know how to go out or come in. <laughs> if you've ever seen like a, a two-year-old trying to figure out how to open a door, how to turn that doorknob, it's like their whole body is covered in grease. Everything they do, their hands are slipping off, they can't get a grip. If they do manage to turn it, they can't figure out how to turn and push at the same time. Basically, what Solomon is saying is, I'm helpless. I'm king. You've made me king. He recognizes that God has given him this position of leadership, but that there's nothing he can do about it. Right? That in, in light of this great challenge of so many people who are expecting his judgment, his leadership, He's like a little child. He doesn't know how to go out or come in. You see this is an expression of humility for Solomon. And that's a key piece to really successful leadership. In fact, in the book Leadership Challenge, the, the way they state this truth that I think Solomon understood is is to say that you need to know as a leader how important you are. You know, but not like one of these, "Hey, I'm I'm pretty important stuff. Have you heard have you heard of me? I'm the king." Right? It's to know how important you are and yet remain humble. To realize that your position is not all about you. That our leadership is not just for our own glory as an opportunity to sit back and relax and just enjoy the kingdom until we die. But our leadership is stewardship. It's about the people who are under us. And so Solomon has recognized this. He sees a great many people who he's responsible for. And he comes to God and he says, I'm not capable of this. You know, as good leaders, we need to know what we're up against. We need to be able to assess the situation. If we're going to find a solution, if we're going to be able to respond, then we need to know what we're facing, right? It reminds me of the parable of the mice. The mice had a challenge. Can you imagine what a challenge would be for mice? The challenge was the cat. Alright, the cat was eating everybody. And so the mice all gather together. All the mice come together. They're going to have a big meeting and they're going to figure out what to do. You see, and recognizing the challenge is the easy part. There's nobody at this mouse meeting that says, no, I don't really think that's a problem. Alright? The mice come together and they're throwing out ideas, and people are going back and forth, left and right, until one mouse stands up and he says, You know what we got to do? We need to bow. The cat. If we put a bell on the cat, then we'll hear him coming a mile away, and we'll all be able to run to freedom. Everything will be great. Everybody will be safe. And all the other mice, they begin to cheer. They love this. He's a hero. What an idea. Hoorays and huzzahs coming around. Until another mouse stands up. It says, but who will bell the cat?" Solomon is in a moment in his life where he determines that he is going to bell the cat. You see, leadership isn't just about recognizing the challenge. Right? We need to seek a solution. But we can't just be that mouse that stands up and says, I, I've got a solution. Right? Because it takes action. Good leaders act. You know, I'm, I'm glad to say that I've learned this lesson in my own life. I'm saddened to say I've had to learn it more than once. You know, it reminds me of a time when I was in my first year of ministry and adult small groups weren't multiplying the way that we hoped that they were. And so me and all my mice, we got together, gathered all all the leaders, all the small group leaders and some of the team leaders. and, And we said, all right, what is the challenge? What's going on here? You know, we could recognize where things weren't what we would wanted them to look like. And so we're throwing ideas back and forth and we're talking and then. Drew Thorwall spoke up. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if every adult in our church was in a small group and think about the way that they would be discipled in the community that we would have and just the the impact that we would make. And everybody was, that's awesome and we're excited and huzzahs and hoorays. and, And I was feeling pretty good because I had cast a vision of where we wanted to go. But I hadn't said really anything about how we'd get there. So another mouse spoke up, who, who fortunately I'm still friends with, <laughs> but he spoke up and he said, you know, that's, that's great, but how do we get there? You know, what do we actually do? And, and he gave, you know, three or four ideas for things that we could try to do. And this was where kind of the, the weakness in my own heart, you know, a little bit of the dark corner, you know, came in because I was enjoying being celebrated and I didn't want to lose this moment. And, and so I kind of just brushed it aside. I said something lame about like, yeah, well, well, you know, we'll figure out more of those details at, a, at the next meeting. And so, so basically what happened is because I was stuck in my moments of, of leadership weakness, then we all got stuck. Because then I have to come back to my office the next morning, look over my notes from the meeting and realize I can't follow up on any of this. There are no action steps. Right? There's nothing to do here. We know where we are. We know where we'd like to be. But we have no idea how to get there. See, leaders who man up don't just recognize the challenge. They seek the godly solution. So Solomon doesn't quit here in 7 and 8, but even as he's recognized the challenge, then in verse 9, he makes his request. And these are Solomon's words. Therefore, in light of this challenge, therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? You see, that's a rhetorical question because he knows that the only one who is capable of that is God. But God has put Solomon in a position of leadership where he's responsible for this, and so he goes to the source. Because God is the only one who has the understanding that Solomon needs to do this work, so he goes to God to get it. He asks for an understanding heart, what God in a moment will call wisdom. He asks for this so that he can discern between people, that he can discern their hearts between good and evil and make wise judgment. You see, his leadership is stewardship. He didn't ask for the wealth. He didn't ask for the long life. He didn't ask for the death of his enemies, right? He asked for the wisdom he needed to serve other people. There's a pretty cool example of this that comes out of American history that I didn't even know about this until I was studying this passage uh, but our former president, Harry S. Truman, the first time he spoke to Congress, actually used these same words. And when I say these same words, I mean he literally quoted First Kings 3.9. And this is what he said. At this moment, I have in my heart a prayer. As I have assumed my heavy duties, I humbly pray to Almighty God in the words of King Solomon. Give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? And then he adds this. I ask only to be a good and faithful servant of my Lord and my people. What an awesome request. You know, to think about your heart being in that place, that the first thing you think of is not... not my power, my authority, how people will recognize me, or or even my legacy, but it's how do I serve the people that God has put under my care. You see, when Solomon asks for wisdom, that's like the antidote to all the confusion and all the conflict and all the catastrophe that's been around him. He recognizes because he's had the power, he's had the influence, he's had the money, and those things didn't work. He needs something that only God can give. He needs that wisdom. And he's experienced the benefit in his own life of somebody who was willing to man up to teach him this. His mother, Bathsheba, was willing to man up. We've seen already in this book how how as his mother, she was able to guide him into the position that he's in now. And you think about that, that because of her faithfulness, she had a major impact on the next generation of leaders. That Solomon is in a position that at the beginning of the most important time of his life, what does he do first? He goes and makes a thousand burnt offerings. He's seeking God because that was something that he had been taught by another faithful leader. You know, I I think about that and I think about my own life. Because for me, you know, and and for you, if you think about the the different places that, that God has given you care over others, you know, my fatherhood is stewardship. And I, I mentioned to you, I've got four little ones. And look how nice Mama got them all dressed up for that picture. Isn't that great? <laughs> uh, Daddy wishes he could say that he helped, but Mama organized that whole thing. But you, you've got our daughter, Belle, in the back. Uh, Simeon, the 10-month-old, on the front left. Axel and Obed on the right are the twins. Uh, Axel's in the front there. And, you know, every day when you've got four kids, four and under, it's, it becomes very easy to recognize the challenge in your life. <laughs> And you know, when I say challenge, that doesn't just mean opposition, right? It means opportunity, too. And I was thinking about this because there are so many moments where I feel like I I lose track of what it means that that my fatherhood, that my leadership is stewardship. And we had something happen the other day where it was Daddy Day, so Mama's at work, so it's just me and the four kids, and I'm in charge, and, and I just realized I haven't seen Axel for a while. And so... So I go looking, because I'm a good dad, okay? Not a bad dad, because I didn't see him. I'm a good dad, because I went to find him. And so I'm listening through doors, and then I hear some muffled crying. And I go into his bedroom, and Axel is locked in the toy bin. And Obed is sitting on the floor next to him, just playing with blocks like it's no big deal. And Axel's just crying and crying. And Belle had been downstairs with me, and Simeon was taking a nap. So we get... I get Axel out of the toy bin, because I'll tell you what, if you think about a two-year-old that doesn't know how to come out or go in, and his whole body's like grease with a doorknob, he definitely cannot get out of a toy bin, all right? So I get him out, we make sure he's okay. You know, I give Obed a little bit of a speech, because I can't tell if he's involved here or not, but at least, like, (laughs) help him if you see this happen again. And then we go downstairs and we move on with our day. And, you know, to, to be honest with you, it, it is hilarious thinking back on it. But in the moment, I'm like, what is going on here? And why can't you guys and what are you doing? And who did this? And, and so I try to move on. But now I'm like flustered, you know. And and my prayers, like if I fell asleep right then and God said, what shall I give you? I would say, just make the kids stop it. <laughs> now that's kind of where my head is in this moment. About half an hour later. All right, so we've sort of moved on from this. Belle comes to me, and she says, Daddy, I locked Axel in the toy bin. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. That's it. Go to your room. You're getting a timeout. First response. Okay, it was just, it was just the frustration. It was the anger. I, I didn't want to deal with this. I was done with this. Before she even got to the stairs, though, and I take no credit for this. I believe that this is God's mercy in my life. I, 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 I have a thought. Because as she's walking away, I realized she never had to tell me. Right, I had no idea what happened, and we'd all moved on. But there was something in her heart. There was something that was weighing on her to come and repent this. And so I stopped in that moment and, and tried to say like a Solomon prayer. You know, to realize that, that, God, it may not be a whole nation, but it is these four kids. And you've made me responsible for this. And, and I have a stewardship to this. And so would you give me peace just for like the next... 60 seconds. Just like one minute that I would be able to process what wisdom would look like in this situation. To balance the grace and truth. To see this not as opposition but as opportunity. And so I actually followed Belle upstairs. We did get a timeout because we had done something wrong but it was a much shorter time out and I spent it with her. And I just shared with her a verse that that, uh, that it tells us in the New Testament that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I said, Belle, do you realize that because you repented, Jesus has already forgiven you? You know, and so we, we turn from a moment of just frustration and anger and, and like leave us alone for a while to, to really a moment that of celebration. And it's been amazing to see how that moment now is something that we can point back to because when things go wrong, all right. I wish I could tell you that meant she never did anything wrong again we never had to repent anymore, <laughs> but that's not life. But now that repentance is something we celebrate instead of something that we fear. You know, and, and I think that that's a moment where God was was granting me wisdom. You know, and and that is I think what Solomon discovered, and you can imagine. My heart as a dad, when I see my kids learn this kind of truth, imagine God's heart when he says, ask for anything, and this is what Solomon asks for. In fact, if you look at verse 10, God responds. It says, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, Behold, I've done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God says, you want wisdom? Give you wisdom to the max. So wise that there was never anyone before him or after him that was as wise as Solomon would be because he'd gotten wisdom from the source. Wisdom to take into his position of leadership as he saw the stewardship he had over the people of God. It's really pretty incredible because then God says, in fact, I'm so pleased with your request and that you didn't ask for these short-term things. Right, but that you are expecting the greater reward, focused on the greater gift, that I will give you these other things as well. And so Solomon's request for wisdom kind of makes these other things possible. In James 1.5, it gives us this same encouragement. Because to this point, we're talking about Solomon and a gift that God had given him. But if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of the Savior who knew what it meant to man up more than anybody else ever did, Right? Who paid it all on that old rugged cross. Then God gives us this promise in James 1 5 that if any of you, he means you sitting here this morning, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a promise. That's a promise. Because God is the good giver. It says he gives liberally. You want an example of generosity, this is it. God is the source of all wisdom. He wants us to be wise. If we ask for it, he'll give it to us. He'll give it to us, just as he did for Solomon. It even says that he'll do that without reproach, which means sometimes we ask for wisdom and then we squander it. And sometimes we have to come back and ask for wisdom again, and God never looks at you and says, you know what, too bad, I gave you wisdom last time and I'm not doing it again. Right? He gives liberally, without reproach. Well, then in verse 15, Solomon wakes up from his dream. Research tells us that people forget about 90% of their dreams. Okay, for Solomon, this is the 10%. All right, this is an unforgettable dream, and this changes the trajectory for him. In fact, you see there, it says that Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. You see adoration, you see celebration, and in a moment we'll see implementation. Because Solomon's worship has been refocused. Before this, he was in the wrong place, but when he wakes up from this dream, he realizes God is at work and his worship is refocused. He goes back to the Ark of the Covenant and he does the offerings all over again. Not only that, but you see that he takes his servants and he says, this blessing isn't just for me, but this is for all of you. Let's celebrate this together. You know, another leadership truth is that you replicate what you celebrate. And so he brings his servants in on this. But then if you're reading this passage or if you're or if you are one of his servants, you say, OK, you had this dream. You say God gave you wisdom. Prove it. Let's see it. And so the back half of this chapter is basically an example that the, the author gives of how Solomon applied his wisdom. And so uh, in the verses that follow, there's a story of two women who were harlots. They were prostitutes. All right, so it's already hard to to trust these folks. But then they come to Solomon. Each of them had had a baby, but one of the babies had died. One of the mothers had fell asleep on the baby, and the baby passed away. And so now you have two women fighting over one baby. And they come to Solomon, and they say, King, one woman says, this is my baby. The other woman says, no, it's not. It's my baby. Now, can you imagine trying to figure that out? Like I have enough trouble with the two-year-olds when they're fighting over the same toy, right? These two women are fighting over another human being. And so Solomon hears their stories, and then you remember that he prayed for a discerning heart to understand the good, the evil, to see where people are at. And so this is what Solomon says in verse 24. The king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, divide the living child in two, give half to one and half to the other. Now, that does not sound terribly wise, but look at how the women respond. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other basically said, fine, whatever. The other said, let him be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. You see, Solomon used his wisdom to discern their hearts. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. We see in verse 28 how the people respond to this example of wisdom from Solomon. It says that all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered and they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. You see, they recognized the wisdom of God. They recognized that that not only did Solomon recognize the challenge, but he was seeking the godly solution. But not only did he hear the solution, but he was willing to act. He was willing to respond. And so Solomon's leadership sets the tone for the entire nation. So I want you to think, as we kind of wrap up, about the places that you are in leadership. Whether that's in your business, or in your home, or here at church. As you think about the people that God has put under your care, I want you to think about recognizing one challenge. Just choose one. Because I know it's easy. We could probably take a piece of paper right now and rattle off five, six, a dozen challenges that you may be facing right now. But whether it's opposition or an opportunity, like Solomon looking forward at his kingship, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, looking at your kids. And thinking about how do I not just survive, but how do I take this opportunity to influence the next generation of leaders? And maybe that's that's figuring out how to transition your business, setting up a succession plan to a son or to a manager. Whatever it is, I want you to choose one challenge and seek the godly solution. Take James to heart. Pray for wisdom. Be specific. But here's the thing. When God gives it to you, you've got to respond. Recognize the challenge. Seek the godly solution and respond. And let God show you how your leadership can impact an entire nation. Would you pray with me? Father God, I just want to thank you for this morning that we have shared. I want to thank you for the gift of Christ and the work that he did on the cross. And, and Lord, even the way that the things that we've studied this morning You know, we do these things in response to you and in glorification of your name. And so, God, we thank you for this time. I pray that you would walk with us from this place as we face those challenges and seek to lead in a way that honors you. In your name, amen. As you're heading out today, if you want to grab some uh, Easter tickets, uh, we have seven services coming up. Uh, We actually have one that's already sold out Saturday at 4.30 so uh, there are tickets available for the other six. If you head out over by the fireplace, there's tickets available. And there's also tickets available for our Easter drop. Um, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt with helicopters. I had two people close to me last week and said, you're not really going to have helicopters, are you? Like, do you think I lie when I get up here on stage? I don't know. Yes, so yes. Yeah, so there's, there's some helicopters. And, and you wouldn't it's actually very, very cheap. Uh, it sounds like a big, expensive thing, actually. Uh, it's a very, very cheap thing. but It would probably be a lot of fun to adopt those off and to have the kids grab the eggs from that. So... Grab tickets for that as well. The tickets are available. Get one per kid for the Easter egg drop. Uh, And if you're coming to the brunch at 1220 on Sunday, that brunch is available if you RSVP. So the back of the tickets for the 1220 is a little code that you can uh, respond to, and that will give you a chance to be part of the brunch as well. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week.